You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Spinal cord injuries produce devastating and lifelong disabilities. What therapies are available to us to help our patients who have these unfortunate injuries? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Naomi Kleitman, Program Director with the Spinal Cord Injury Portfolio at the National Institute for Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Kleitman. Thank you. Today we're going to be discussing some of the scope and background that relates to spinal cord injury. Dr. Kleitman, how prevalent is this problem? In the United States, it's estimated at about 11,000 people a year sustain spinal cord injuries and survive. They have varying degrees of paralysis depending on where the injury happens. Worldwide, we don't know the exact numbers, but maybe as many as a half a million to a million people a year. And cumulatively, that means a substantial number of people have to deal with these ongoing disabilities. Yes, and it happens more frequently in young people, 15, 30 years old. That range is the highest, and very often young men. See, I saw in one of your publications that over 80% in some series are men as opposed to women. Overall, that's the prevalence. The ratio of about 4 to 1, which comes out to about 80% men, 20% women, has been pretty steady over the years. There's a little bit of change when older people are injured, for instance, in car accidents. It tends to be a, a bit more females proportionately, but when the injuries are due to falls, accidents, sports, action kinds of injuries, the men unfortunately take the brunt of it. Are there specific etiologies that seem to be the most common causes of these type of injuries? Well, motor vehicle accidents are still the largest cause in the United States and, in fact, in a lot of countries. U.S. has violence and falls are the biggest. Things like sports injuries get a lot of attention but actually only make up about 10 to 15 percent of the injuries. I don't know the exact numbers in the most recent years. The category of violent crime you mentioned in the United States, is that much less so worldwide? Overall, worldwide, I think we do worse in that case. <laughs> there are some countries that have almost no violent crime, some of the European countries that keep statistics. Obviously, other countries have a lot of it, whether it's violent crime or terrorism. Obviously, that's a very big issue in many countries. And with the motor vehicle accidents and the predominance of men, does that suggest that these are careless drivers, or is it not necessarily the responsible driver who's the one that's injured? Well, obviously, when a traffic accident happens, there are people on both sides, some who may be responsible for the accident and many who aren't. The propensity is still higher in men and young men, even in car accidents, and that has to do with driving habits and risk-taking. But you're right that it can happen to just about anybody at any time. Have some of the improvements with automobiles been helpful in lowering these numbers? Well, it's hard to talk about what numbers are lower and what numbers are higher in terms of overall driving habits change, driving patterns change, demographics change. Certainly, a lot of the restraint systems have done a lot to protect people. I myself was in a serious car accident several years back and walked away completely unharmed, where I'm sure that it wouldn't have been that case had I not had my seatbelt on. In the situation where very serious accidents happen and people survive that might not have otherwise survived, which some restraint systems will give you that result, in those cases you may find injuries and survival after injuries like spinal cord where someone might not have survived before. I think overall the restraint systems have done a lot to prevent both brain and spinal cord injuries, though, in traffic accidents. 
tell us a little bit about what actually happens to the spine when there is a traumatic injury to it? What is the mechanism of injury and where are our targets for helping to minimize that? Well, when the spine is injured, it's generally injured in a crush. So the spinal cord itself is protected by the vertebrae, which are obviously very large, very strong bones. And if the vertebrae are intact but shifted one against another, the two vertebrae can actually squeeze the spinal cord in between. If the vertebrae are broken, as it would be in a very high-impact injury or something like even a gunshot injury, fragments of the bones may actually penetrate the spinal cord. If there is a penetrating injury by a bullet or a knife, you'd get both a cutting of the spinal cord and a sort of a blast injury, which again is can be like a brain injury. A bullet can create all kinds of percussive damage in the tissue. Overall, the statistics are is that most injuries are not true cuts of the spinal cord, but in fact some compression, some contusion of the spinal cord. And so you get some degree of damage, but usually not a complete cut or transaction. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm discussing spinal cord injuries with Naomi Kleitman, Dr. Naomi Kleitman, Program Director at the Neuroscience Center at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Kleitman, I was surprised when I was reading a little bit for our interview that a substantial number of spinal cord injuries result in blood pressure lowering pretty uh, immediately. They're very often associated with traumatic injuries, and there can be all kinds of bleeding and other trauma going on in the system at the same time. To be honest, I can't speak too much to the immediate medical effects at the emergency room level, but a number of those are being researched by the clinicians who know a lot more about it than I do. Eventually, the injury leads to an inflammatory response, and that perpetuates some of the damage to the nerve tissue? There is a series of what we call secondary damage that happens. There's an immediate loss of cells, and as you said, change in blood pressure or actually hemorrhage at the site of injury when the injury happens, and a lot of nerve cells and connections die at that point. But that actually sets off a cascade of changes within the spinal cord that include a series of inflammatory events, starting out with just the chemicals and transmitters at the site of injury that themselves can be toxic, to the influx of inflammatory cells, edema, swelling, and macrophages and things entering the area sometimes days after the injury. All of these can continue to create new damage in the tissues of the spinal cord, and the injuries actually tend to expand over the first days to weeks after the injury happens. I imagine then, as we talk about therapies, some of these processes and mediators are potential targets for therapy? Definitely the secondary injuries that this cascade of chemical and inflammatory changes are a very big target for the development of novel therapies. The one therapy that we have in this country that's used very soon after spinal cord injury is high-dose steroids. Methylprednisolone is, in many cases, routinely administered within eight hours after the injury. A good example of the change and the importance of timing after these injuries, it turns out when that was clinically tested back in the 1980s, if the patients got the methylprednisolone too late after the injury, it was actually more damaging than nothing. But if it's given, especially within the first three to four, but within the overall within eight hours after injury, it's felt to have some mitigating effect on damage to the actual 
nerve fibers themselves in terms of membrane damage, as well as making the inflammatory responses much less damaging and preventing some of that secondary injury. But you've got a very limited time window there. Tell us a little bit about the complications down the road after there's been a significant spinal cord injury. So many body systems can be affected. Pretty much there's not a body system that isn't affected. It's hugely important to understand the medical conditions these people are under. First of all, as we said, if it's a traumatic injury, um, there may be a lot of other trauma going on very soon after the injury. That will ultimately, hopefully, be taken care of medically, but other systems begin to decay very quickly. So, for instance, bone begins to weaken and drops off very significantly during the first year after injury and may leave a person relatively sensitive to bone fractures throughout their life. The autonomic systems change. You know, everyone understands that you lose voluntary muscle movement, but muscles may begin to contract outside of voluntary control, what we would call spasms or spasticity. Function of the sensory system is lost above the level of injury, so a person may not be able to move their legs. They can't feel their legs. On the other hand, another process a lot of people develop during the first year after injury is actually pain. Sometimes even in an area where sensation is damaged, what's called neuropathic pain can develop either at the level of injury or even below the level of injury. There's issues with bowel and bladder control, body temperature control, all kinds of autonomic cascades can go into something called autonomic dysreflexia. If the injuries are high enough, there's problems with breathing, coughing, pulmonary and always concerns about urinary tract infections and things because if you don't have voluntary voiding, you're very, very susceptible to infections. And that's just the short list. With regard to the autonomic dysreflexia, that can present a number of ways? Yes, it's a very poorly known phenomenon, even among a number of spinal injured persons that I've known who are experiencing it. They say, you know, Sometimes when I need to void, I feel itchy all over. You know, it just doesn't feel right. I start to get a headache. Those are actually signs of a very serious condition. What we know is happening is that those same sensory nerves that the person may not actually be able to feel and experience still feed back into the spinal cord itself. And the sympathetic nervous system, which is adjacent to the spinal column, not actually in the spinal cord, but ganglia outside of it, gets activated and you start to have poorly adapted responses, and so the heart will begin to race, blood pressure can rise, it can put people at high risk of stroke, all because the body is responding to pain at the level of the bladder, but not responding in a controlled and regulated way as it would in a person with an intact nervous system. How about the emotional side? If someone survives a plethora of physical conditions they need to address, I imagine the emotional burden has to be quite extensive. It is. There's a lot of research going on in terms of quality of life and emotional well-being after injuries, depression. There's definitely situations of substance abuse at times after injury and a number of concerns in terms of, you know, the education of patients, as I was just implying, and certainly they're being able to return to their homes, their work lives. But on the other hand, there have also been studies that show that when even very high quadriplegics, people who've lost control over much of their body, become very dependent on assistance for survival, that their quality of life can actually return to very high levels. There are issues like whether a person can live independently or whether they remain in a rehabilitation or institutionalized 
home setting. That can have a huge effect on a person's quality of life. Certainly if a person is able to work and able to get back in society, we call them activities of daily living, participation indices and things like that, the more a person can get back to life and use things like wheelchairs to get around, there's also reports of very high quality of life in a lot of the population. It really depends on the circumstances. I want to thank Dr. Naomi Kleitman, Program Director with the Spinal Cord Injury Portfolio, the Neuroscience Center of the NIH in Bethesda. She's been our guest as we've been discussing some of the myriad of problems that can result from spinal cord injury and ending up with a hopeful note about how still quality of life is possible after a terrible injury such as what we have been discussing. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.